Hi, I'm SC Farrow and I'm on the Right Way podcast talking about my novel, This Is Not A Lie. Yeah, thanks so much for introducing the episode there, SC Farrow. And hello to everyone out there listening to this in digital land on Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this from. Maybe a good old-fashioned ham radio, who am I to say and judge? Uh, hello, everyone. It is I, your host, Samuel James Elliott, the person that you just heard from introducing this episode of the Right Way podcast. It is none other than today's guest, who is SC Farrow. SC Farrow, writer, editor, novelist, talking to me about her novel, This Is Not A Lie. This Is Not A Lie was largely inspired or uh, SC's uh, earlier youth sort of served to shape or inform uh, what would ultimately become This Is Not A Lie with her meeting and romance with, uh, with two men in which she met in her youth. Uh, and yeah, so basically it's set within the sort of St Kilda, Crystal Ballroom era, late, uh, mid to early to mid 80s. Uh, she has written a story which is centers around uh, one fictional band, The Black Hearts, and in particular, one member of the band, Joel, uh, who was a closeted gay man, naturally, given that the era was uh, profoundly and singularly sort of homophobic across the board there, including within the music scene, which was supposedly progressive, uh, and his meeting and kind of a whirlwind romance with Harry and how they go about meeting each other and then sort of what eventuates from there, coupled with Joel's sort of rampant heroin addiction as well. So it's kind of like a battle between addictions, that of his love of uh, ever developing love of of harry as well as his uh, heroin addiction full-blown heroin addiction so yeah just wanted to give a bit of a trigger warning to that naturally we're going to be discussing or what we did discuss heroin addiction homophobia gay bashing this is all of the era all that was discussed i just wanted to give a heads up about that now uh so if you're if that's going to trigger you then this might not be the episode for you I would also ask you to listen to the outro that I'm going to throw to at the end of the interview, which is going to mention about uh, the bookshop Darlinghurst, a uh, great institution of a bookshop, uh, the absolute veritable best brick and mortar bookshop around. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. So stick around for that as well. But in the interim, please give a big digital round of applause to SC Farrow discussing with me her novel, This Is Not A Lie. Susanna Farrow, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program on this glorious lockdown day. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. Yes, another lockdown day. Hmm. Are you, as what I'm seeing, that's like a virtual background that you've put on it. Hey. Yes. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I was like looking at it and I was like, your place is so much more nicely furnished uh, with minimal, minimalist understated furnishings than my joint. I wish. No, this is, uh, this is a virtual background. Lovely. Yes, that I've, I've, I've popped on. Um, I'd like to say just for today, but no, I actually had to find a background when I was teaching. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's it's so legit that I didn't know. Yeah, and I had to ask. I was like, it would have it would have been like a rock in my shoe kind of thing. I would have been able to progress with the interview. But um, let's get down to the nitty gritty. I know you've listened to a few episodes. I know you know how it goes with the first question, the one I always like to ask. It's an oldie but a goodie. Is where did the idea for this is not a lie generate from? Because I got the idea. I got a bit of an idea from probably the one of the most candid uh, afterwards I've ever read in my life, but um, I wanted to hear it in your words. This, so I wanted to hear it from you. Okay. Well, the inspiration came from two people who were very, very dear to me in a previous life, 
a lifelong past, um, but they were two men whom I loved dearly and neither of whom is still with us. So one, one of those fellows was um, unfortunately became a drug addict in our time together and the other fellow was gay. Mm. Um, yeah, closet homosexual, but we had a very close relationship and um, my years spent with each of those men was uh, were transformational and very, very intense. And they really um, helped shape me to become the person I am today, obviously, as, as everybody's years, past years do. But, um, yeah, so they were the, essentially the inspiration. Mm. And um, so first and foremost, I mean, I wanted to know if there was a sort of, because like obviously there was sort of the nearer that you grew up in, but I mean, the way in which this sort of crystal ballroom era has been realised in all these locations and stuff is just so vivid and uh, so well realised that I wondered, was this all just, just your, your memories of the era or was it, there a lot of research that went on? How'd you go about sort of, you know, creating, creating this environment with all these particular places that I've never kind of like heard of before? Um, I wrote some of them down. There's the SB. There was the the venue. Um, there was some. It was a hotel that Judy Garland stayed at, which I absolutely want to kind of check out as well. That sounds so cool. Is it, are these places that you haunted, and then this sort of informed what kind of uh, translated onto page for this is not a lie, or how did that? How did you go about that? Um, some of them um, I have I I've definitely visited because they're so iconic. A lot of those um, venues are very iconic. Um, a lot of, and, and one of them, especially the venue, it was one of my favourite places in St Kilda. Um, you know, one of those fantastic dives um, <laughs> with the sticky carpet, you know. <laughs> it was just fantastic. It was a great venue. Um, but that's no longer there now. It's, that's been, you know, just torn down and redeveloped. I think it's a, an apartment building, the site's now and, and a host an apartment building or, or, or something like that. Um, so, yes, I have been to many of the, the venues that are highlighted in the book um, because I grew up around there and, mm. um, you know, was a part of the music scene and it was, uh, yeah, it was just something. It was, uh, it was my passion at the time and, of course, many of those venues made it into the, into the novel. Good to see it before gentrification kind of made it uh, not even a ghost of its former self. It's kind of like oh, the yeah, yeah. It's like the end of the transition between Las Vegas of the of the yesteryear to what is it the family friendly sort of venue now. Absolutely. But, um, so when you were haunting this place, when you were growing up, and then when you were going through them, I mean, like, was there any sort of indication you thought? Did you think of one day that you were going to be writing about them, or you were just living in the moment and just music? Music was your your jam, your thing. Oh, yeah, I was very much living in the moment. Honestly, I didn't think I'd live to be this long. I'd live to, be, you know, see the age that I, that I am now, honestly. Um, sorry, you asked me previously about, you know, did I do any research? Sorry, I mm. forgot to address that part of the question. It's okay. Um, the answer is yes, I did. Mm. Um, a lot of it, a lot of the, um, the stuff that's in the book is from memory, but I did have to do a bit of research because memory fades and 
I wanted to try and get things as 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 right as I could possibly get them. So yes, I I did have to do a bit of research, but um, yeah, but most of it's drawn from memory. So yeah. With the memory and the the kind of like the buttressing of memory with with the research, did you ever find that there was this contradiction of the two where you're like, oh, like this is what's being told to you on a page or wherever you found it, and you're like, nah, that's not how I remember it. And then if that was the case, then who won out? You, did you go off with your memory of what you what you experienced, or did you go off what you kind of found in your research? Oh, look, I found in my research, I found that a lot of things were quite true to how the way I remembered things. <laughs> but of course, you know, it was so long ago and everybody's going to have a different memory, mm. you know, of, of what happened. So, or what a place was like, you know, the atmosphere, everybody had a different experience of these iconic places. Um, so, you know, n- no two would be the same, but, um, Yes, my research did buttress uh, buttress those memories, mm. and what when what won out um, was actually the fiction. <laughs> the fiction itself was what won. Um, whereas I could pluck a bit from research, pluck a bit from memory. Mm. What what the amalgamation was the thing that actually won the day. You know. Yeah, good. It's yeah. always I always find it just really interesting with um, kind of like historical fiction or period fiction, however you want to describe it, like a, of era, of a certain era, particularly when a person's lived in it in some capacity because then there's always the, the question of, well, you know, is my memory, does you know, as you said, memory fades or it kind of can be distorted. So then how do you go about that, particularly if it's at odds with, with what you find within research? I'm, I'm also yeah. like to hear that you were mentioning about that the fiction sort of one out as well yeah because it's like this beautiful aggregation of of your imagination with what you with what you've found there yeah so now talk to me a little bit about before we get into nitty-gritty which is the love the love story at its core what i'd argue is at the core of the snow lie is i want to talk a little bit about karen because what she was kind of a cool character in terms of being a band manager and uh, being a woman at the time, because I, I, I assume that even within a progressive music scene within sort of Crystal Ballroom era, probably wouldn't have been all too many around of that era. And I kind of uh, wanted you to talk a little bit about her and sort of where the inspiration drew from for her. Yeah, look, I think you're probably right about that. There probably wasn't too many um, female band managers. Honestly, the inspiration for her came from a friend mm of mine who read the book in one of its earliest drafts. And she, Karen, the Karen character originally wasn't female. She was, yeah, it was a male character. And my, and my friend said to me and rightly so, um, you got too many male characters in this book. You really need to, you know, put some more women in it. And, um, so consequently that was really good advice. And I turned Karen, Karen became Joel's sister and, you know, and I think the story's much better mm. for it, you know, um, because of, it's, it's great making her a progressive character, progressive for the time. Um, and I think she really brings a lot, you know, in that female kind of perspective in, in a narrative that's, you know, dominated by male characters. So, um, yeah, that's how she was born. Yeah, that's that's, that's that's so interesting that she wasn't originally female because, like, I can't imagine her as anything else. I mean, like, obviously, I've read the final version that's gone through however many drafts 
but um yeah you are right i mean like it's a it's a it's a much needed and uh uh, important sort of female presence within within the book. I also liked as well because it wasn't like it didn't feel like you just changed the sex of a character, as in they were so interchangeable. It felt like she had her own wants, needs. Particularly, there was like a little bit, particularly early on, she was like concerned about aging and how that could also affect like her her sort of career within it. Talk a little bit about that because that just shows how well the character's kind of been developed. I feel. Well, I, I guess I'll, I'd have to confess, I suppose, to, you know, a little bit of myself mm. being Karen, you know. Um, her character, you know, I've drawn on my own experience, really, I suppose, in the, in the music industry to kind of um, create a foundation for Karen. Mm. Um, so, you know, being a female entertainer or performer, there's always that age, you know, uh, issue oh. around age and, and, you know, getting older. And as soon as you start to show little, you know, signs of becoming older, your, your work opportunities, you know, diminish. Mm. Um, so I guess I've probably tapped into that a bit and, you know, the, the problem that most female performers have. Yeah. In that in that respect, yeah. So yeah, she's probably. I mean, I'm going to be really honest here and just say that all of the characters in there, I mean, I'm part of every one of them. Mm. You know, mm. so I've I've tapped on my own experiences to to help create um, each one of the characters, even though they're actually inspired by other people as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty standard, sort of. I mean, I do that. I think. I think most most do. Even within. I mean, this sort of setting is like you've 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 lived there, you've been there, yeah. you've done all that sort of stuff. But like, even you know, stuff that's kind of far out, far flung um, sci-fi. I feel like it always comprises some qualities of the the writer. Otherwise, they just won't be able to write them. Don't you reckon? Like, totally. Mm. Yep. Talk to me about, um, I kind of want to get into this a little bit later, but I wanted to touch on a little bit of it now, is the heroin addiction. Uh, there's mention in the afterword about that, that you've got some flack for, for it being uh, perceived by some as, uh, as being sort of a, not a gratuitous or glorif- glorifying the, the, the mm. drug addiction. Mm. One thing I liked uh, kind of early on, there's a guy called Paulie who doesn't appear in it all that much, but he sort of contrasted the different types of heroin addiction or more drug addiction. So there's those that uh, use drugs sporadically, i.e. Paulie can go months without. And then there's the, the central character, Joel, who has a full-blown habit. And I felt that that was sort of important that you've included that as well to show, like, a, again, the sort of um, uh, challenges the different sort of misconceptions that people have about heroin addiction with the inclusion yeah. of these different types and they're kind of forming a spectrum. Talk to me a little bit about that, Susanna, because I thought that was quite important and well done too. Thank you. Well, um, that was really important for me to get right. Mm. Um, I think we, there's a lot of misconceptions about addiction. Even now, there's mm. still a lot of misconceptions about addiction, especially uh, addictions um, to to hard drugs, um, and a lot of addicts are perceived as being weak or um, you know losers and and whatever. You can have a high functioning alcoholic. Well, the same thing. You can have a high functioning um, heroin addict. So many addicts hold jobs, go to work, you know, raise families, whatever. But at the heart of 
um, all addiction, I believe, is is a sense of pain. Mm. You know, no one chooses to become an addict just because it, you know, it might be a cool image or whatever. Very rarely is that the case. You know, at the heart of all addiction is some kind of trauma or some kind of pain that people are trying to deal with or cope with. So um, people who are perhaps better at managing that pain um, don't necessarily develop an addiction. Look at people who go into hospital, um, you know, who, who are given um, morphine um, to manage their pain at the time. You know, they'll walk out of hospital and never touch it again. Um, so what, what's the difference, you know, between that person and someone who develops an actual addiction to it? Is it a physical addiction? Yes, there, of course, of course there's a physical addiction. But more importantly, there's um, a mental addiction you know the mental aspect of it is equally if not more important why does someone develop that addiction well in my research my understanding is that there's always a sense of pain at the heart of it um you know no one chooses to live that kind of life just because it's cool Mm. i think that kind of following on from that uh, another thing that I thought that I, what I liked about um, this not lie is that it challenges the there's the general consensus or the misconception that um, that the the music scene is kind of uh, innately just associated with, with that sort of behaviour. So it's kind of written off as such. So oh, it's all it's all just the rock star lifestyle, heroin addiction, uh, drug addiction, just hard partying, hedonistic lifestyle. And I thought that was something as well that you kind of wanted to delve into as well, which kind of happened organically with it. It was just sort of this challenging of the misconception of, uh, or drawing to attention to a more fully realized character showing exactly, um, like you just kind of said as to these sort of tendencies or why that can happen. Yeah. And a lot of um, creative people, uh, and, th- and that was part of my, the research that I did for my MA because mm. my MA was instrumental when I was doing my master's degree was instrumental, you know, the research that I did was um, instrumental in developing the narrative for this book. And um, so, you know, the, what I discovered, sorry, I just kind of lost my train of thought for a minute there. Um, the... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I really That's all good. Time. You were talking about, so we're kind of talking a little bit about how the music scene has been written off as such as kind of just the oh. general message. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm really sorry. Sorry about that. that. I just, um, yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's a lot of creative folk who go into those, you know, those industries, mm. whether you're a painter or a writer or a musician or whatever. And they're, they're, I was asking the question, well, what comes first, the drug addict or the or the creative, you know, personality, or mm. or you know, is there a higher tendency amongst creatives to to be addicts or to become addicts or have you know have that tendency? Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments for, and there's a lot of arguments against. So you know, it's a bit like the chicken and the egg mm. question. Um, but I don't think I don't think we can really deny that that tendency exists or that there's that correlation between artists and, you know, um, going into those creative kind of fields 
and becoming or, or having those addictive type personalities. Um, so, you know, I guess that was one of the things that I wanted to explore. And there is always that thing, you're right, of the hedonistic lifestyle in the music industry. I mean, is it just an excuse to get drunk and take drugs? Well, nine times out of ten, I would say no. There's always an underlying issue, mm. you know, some kind of trauma that people, that these musicians or artists, creatives are dealing with. And their creative expression is often a way to, to deal with that as well, mm. you know, to deal with whatever that trauma is. Apart from the, the creative aspect, you know, that's an, it's the... The creative aspect and the addiction are ways to deal with whatever their pain is. Yeah, I think you're so right. And I think it's just a case of that it's just often written off as, as you know, just being rock and roll, the rock and roll life as, um, as, as yeah. with that, which is kind of, you know, detrimental and sort of really um, condescending really to not. And then, and then that automatically shuts it off because once you've kind of uh, completely singularly judged someone by that or by their addiction, which is kind of exemplified within, within certain characters from the book or their yeah. attitudes, then that yeah. person's lost to you because you're you're never going to you know because you're not going to connect with them or resonate with them on any sort of level. Then how then? Yeah. Did you did you want to say Absolutely. something about that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just agreeing. Oh, yeah. Okay, I, nice. Yeah. All right. So yeah. Look, let's keep talking a little bit about misconceptions because this kind of dovetails nicely into what um what their attitude towards towards gay men um or any sort of what we now kind of term as queer people within within uh the australia within the sort of uh early to mid 80s that the books featured in or the yeah. books set in and the thing i always found uh coming coming back to when i was thinking about it when i was reading it is how uh this is this is a scene here and we've kind of touched on even though sort of karen was you know a fictionalized version is still nevertheless showing a you know a female uh, within this sort of uh, authority role and other industries might not be the case or certainly wasn't the case at the time, but uh, how the attitude towards gay people, gay men within that era within Australia collectively was also mirrored in and pervasive, so pervasive that it was also found within the music scene as well. We're going to talk a little bit about that because there was one line and I wrote it down and it says, Australia's not ready for a gay guitar god. And I thought that that really, just that one sentence that someone said, I forget which character says that, really kind of summed up the world in which um, Joel and Harry sort of live in and you know, orbit around. I want you to talk a little bit about that as well because that gives us a nice bit of context as to how the story progresses between the two. Um, well, that's certainly how I felt at the time mm. because that line was actually spoken by Karen. Okay, kind, yeah. And she, yeah, she was warning Joel that if, because Joel spends his entire existence trying to hide his true identity, which is the seat of his pain, mm. which is the cause of his addiction. So um, when she's, and, but Karen is fully aware of the consequences of his true identity, uh, if that were revealed you know, the impact that that could have on his blossoming career. Um, certainly at the time, um, you know, look, we had, you know, Ian Meldrum was around and there were certainly, um, you know, gay gay musicians out there, um, even though, he, you know, he was a um, you know, journalist. But um, 
it wasn't it wasn't spoken about in public um you know most people wouldn't have known that this was the case this was the case with these folk unless you were and unless you were you know part of the industry you probably wouldn't even know um so even ironically even today someone actually recently when the book came out a few months ago a few people have even said to me why are you trying to cram this lgb thing lgbtq thing down our throat and i'm thinking hang on this is this is 2021 and you're still having this conversation this mm. is still an issue for you so certainly way back in the 80s um you know to and to have because we had um who was prevalent at the time um you know um guys in um jimmy barnes you know mm. bands like that really macho type image imagery um so for someone to outwardly say or you know to to come out and say, say that they were gay that just wouldn't be on it would have been the end of their career you know, Australia truly wasn't ready for um, gay musicians, gay icons mm. in, in, you know, from a, in a hard rock band. Um, well, that was certainly my experience anyway. Other, other folk might have, um, might have had a different experience, but at the time that was certainly my experience. I think that was a very pretty pretty typical, pretty normalised uh, sort of experience there. Yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine. I think that the citing like Barnes is probably a pretty good example. Yeah, of what uh, what the almost the equivalent of the Australian sort of answer to Marlboro Man type of thing, where it's just yeah. masculine and then and being gay is sort of perceived as, as still 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 in some circles, unfortunately, you know, how many years later as, as perceived as weak or effeminate, which is absolutely. absolutely not the case. When we're talking about that, let's let's talk about the counter to this. Um, absurd, bigoted, sort of homophobic uh, societal attitude and the attitude from the music scene was the character of Randall, who I must admit was probably one of my favourite characters as well. And I really like the majority of the characters, but I particularly like Randall because Randall, uh, yeah, is the counterpoint to this. Yeah, he's the he's an Oakland gay man who kind of consoles Joel, takes yeah. him out for his birthday, all this sort of stuff. Tell me a little bit about Randall and what he sort of uh, embodies. I wanted Randall to be... Um, kind of like a voice of reason mm. in many ways. And he was, he was the counterpoint mm. um, to, to he, he was, I guess he represents the um, emerging uh, openly gay character, as you say, openly gay person, um, who was willing to risk his career actually you know, by, by being an openly gay man. Um, so, I, yeah, I guess he was really just the counterpoint. I wanted, I wanted that balance, I guess. So I had, to, I had to have someone who was going to be that voice. And I guess a music journalist was the perfect, perfect counterpoint. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I feel like that's true. That's true. There's this, like, he sort of embodied the changing of the guard sort of uh, societal attitude that was still, unfortunately, very much ahead of his time, but uh, a show of things to come and maybe more likely yeah. uh, enlightened fellows sort of proliferating as the as the years sort of continued along. And that's to make right. the point where 
The other view that was the norm at that time, then sort of, uh, you can never completely eradicate it because I don't think that uh, impression of bigotry and that sort of thing is ever going to go away even no. 100 years from now. But uh, you can make it so that the acceptance is the norm and the bigoted or the homophobic sort of uh, attitudes kind of increasingly becomes less and less frequent, except within the sort of dark animals of the internet, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And, and honestly, look, there were... There were a lot of really brave journalist-type folk out there, you know, mm. who were either writing for gay magazines or or whatever. So that's so Randall. I took my inspiration for Randall from those folk, you know, who were were writing for either university magazines or or whatever. But they were, you know, loud and proud, and and were not going to you know stay in the corners. So he. Um, he certainly wasn't a Molly Meldrum type of character, mm. but um, I guess in his own way, he was, yeah, certainly breaking down barriers. Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Look, um, I want to talk a little bit about the the jugglings of different types of addictions because as the story progresses and these two kind of, these two worlds collide, oh, probably not get copyright for that but so you know, with Joel and Harry <laughs> when they meet them two worlds collide they you know as the story progresses and they're loyal, like the love sort of deepens or becomes more and more powerful I felt at one point uh, particularly within Joel's case it was a it was almost a, a juggling or a vying for different types of addictions there was the there was the heroin addiction which is you know affected him the way it did and then there was the love addiction of uh, what he felt with Harry. I want you to talk yeah. a little bit about this duality of these two addictions as well, if that was something that you had conscious in your mind or if that just kind of happened organically as to the way in which he went about it. Uh, n- no, they were equally important mm. because um, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of absolute devastating love where you just, and, you know, happens to everyone, I suppose, when, when you're young, a teenager, early, in your early 20s, whatever, you know, you just have that devastating romance where you think if it, if it ended, you would end, yeah. you know, your whole existence would end. You become that person. You can't live or breathe without them. You know, they are your 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 lifeblood, so to speak. So I guess in many ways for Joel, while the, the love he felt for Harry or he feels for Harry is so true, it's, you know, that, that Romeo and Juliet type mm devastating um, love and romance. Um, I guess in many ways I think Joel was looking for someone to rescue him Mm. and to save him from himself or to help him to be a braver person in facing the world and embracing his identity and being able to cope, to cope with... um, the world and to have his cake and eat it too, you know, to, to have the, the, the romance and to have his band life because otherwise, you know, one was going to cancel out the other. Mm. So he'd either have to give up the band or give up, give up his relationship. And then in many ways he was um, 
hoping to have his cake and eat it too. So we'll pull it. But, yeah, but, you know, wasn't meant to be. Yeah. Just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's not delve too much into that because I don't want to spoil it. I want everyone, all the listeners to, uh, to get a copy and to read it and find out for themselves. But, I mean, there's, there's for a book that uh, features so much more of the grimmer sort of aspects of the, of the era, heroin addiction, homophobia, gay bashing, that sort of stuff. There was a lot of purity and light and love and warmth within it as well. And I felt, and you kind of nailed the brief, I guess, that you've sort of given to yourself there, Susanna, which is the music at the core of it is sort of the way in which it's sort of lovingly described. And you, you say that, you know, like in your youth that you're, I'm sure you still are obsessed with music. And that kind of really shines through as well. There was one line that says, and I wrote it down verbatim, the making of music is better than food, booze, drugs, and sex. And I thought that that sort of really encapsulated the, the spirit of the book. And some of the more tender parts that show this sort of love prevails, that music prevails and is tied inextricably bound with it there. Yeah. So like there's the, the, the sort of quieter moments with Harry and Joel working on stuff together and how the, the creative sort of juices floweth like that. I want you to talk a little bit about this notion as well, how music prevails and that's so inextricably tied in with love. I think um, for, for a character like Joel, mm. ex- the, his, his expression is not through words mm. or necessarily by, with, uh, through action. He expresses himself through music. Now, when you're a music lover, if you have a, fa- a favourite guitarist or a favourite keyboard player or whatever... Everyone who loves music will understand this when I say the way they musicians can express themselves through music is almost otherworldly. Mm. You know, we can be taken on a, on a true journey through a piece of music, even if it's, you know, whether it's Mozart or Metallica. If it's something that moves you, that's all that matters, you know, just the, the emotional expression uh, and the way musicians can pour everything of themselves into, you know, a, a guitar lick or, a, 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 you know, even a, a you know, 12-bar blues. You mm. know, everyone, every musician in the world has their own way of expressing uh, their emotion through through you know twelve notes, twelve notes uh, uh, in a in a scale, and it's just extraordinary. So um, true. Yeah. So I guess for Joel, you know, um, his expression, his self expression, and even for Harry because mm. he's a musician too. Um, you know that 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 I guess is the is the glue that binds them in many respects, over and above um, the, their physical love or desire for each other, the thing that really binds them is their, is their love of music. Mm. Yeah. It's so true. Because the outshines even, there's another section which I really liked. It was the way it was worded. was talking about how they were bound by a fear that neither of them should feel, which is, I think, emblematic of, of what they're, sort of uh, how they perceive themselves within society sort of attitude towards them and I think that you're right I think that that uh is definitely sort of uh, maybe the most instant or easily identifiable bond between them but then as it as the romance sort of 
blossoms and the love sort of strengthens, then it's clearly you know, the passion for the love of music and that being a communicator that can sort of communicate all the many ineffable things that is the shortest sort of human condition that uh, otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the thing that transcends. Mm. It's the thing that makes the relationship transcend everything else. You know, so their whatever lack of um, ability they might have to express themselves in words or, or whatever it is, um, you know, music is the thing that that takes them to that peak. So, so are true. you a musician? No. I love music. <laughs> I love music, but no, I'm not a musician. But my my um, taste in music is, I don't know, I don't even know how you describe this, Susanna. It's eclectic is a nice yep. way of putting it. It's... Uh, it's fucking batshit is probably a more elegant way of putting it. Um, <laughs> but as a music lover, you will yeah. understand that. Yeah, hundred percent, I do. Hundred percent, I do. But for yeah. me, I think that you might you might um, get it more. I use the I use the air air um, air quotes because for me, it's again one of those sort of mediums where it's like it's it it resonates with me obviously on many many levels. But um, I can't because I am not that way creatively. Uh, inclined and equipped then it just goes over my head just the the process of it you know I just get to enjoy the finished product and mm. and it is the great unifier I mean it, it really truly is and it can cast away all the shadows of all the sort of dark elements of society kind of uh, even for a brief moment you know into the into the fall there is everyone kind of gets to enjoy it and communicate people that have nothing else in common that don't speak the same language Yep. from com- two completely different walks of life can yep. gather and bond over music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And that's one of the greatest things about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Oh, couldn't agree more. Totally. Tell me about, because like, again, and I, I seriously said this and I wasn't uh, being um, talking shit with the, the after the afterward. Mm. I was so impressed by the honesty of it. I don't, I don't think I've ever encountered one that's so candid about some, uh, some pretty, heart-wrenching stuff about your own personal life there, Susanna. With the, t- tell me about the journey of, of how this book came to be because it sounds pretty rough for a lot of it. Yeah, well, it was. It was a bit of a five-year odyssey, really. Mm. Um, and I did cops quite a bit of um, flack because obviously I'm, I'm not a guy, I'm mm. not male and I'm not gay. Um, so I did cop a lot of flack about... Um, writing about a male gay character. So that was one thing. And and I did cop a lot of flack about um, writing a book about addiction. Mm. Um, And I was very aware of, you know, not wanting it to be a how-to book, but I wanted people to understand. I wanted readers to understand um, why drug addicts do what they do, why any addict would do what they do and what the appeal is and what the the um, the self-medicating, you know, that that is is the whole thing around addiction. You know, it's that self-medicating. And I want readers to understand what that or get a taste of what that is like. Mm. Um, so, you know, um, I was... Deeply in love with a guy who was a heroin addict. He became a heroin addict. Um, you know, we had this on again, off again romance. I think we met when I was 15 and he was 17. Mm. 
Um, and, you know, it was just, it was that Romeo and Juliet um, romance. You know, we were young and it was just, it was, it was, a, it was a passion that, you know, sort of, it didn't burn out, but um, it, was, it was destructive. Mm. And, you know, he, he was a heroin addict, as I said, and, you know, I was, if I wasn't careful, I was going to head down that path with him. Um, but anyway, I didn't, thankfully. But I was in that world mm. and I was in that world for a, a long time. And in any way, in some of our, our off moments, you know, I fell in love with another man who was a, a, a gay man. He was um, disowned by his family and uh, by his father specifically, um, and which was just absolutely devastating. And he, you know, was a victim of gay bashings and um, all sorts of horrid crimes. So, you know, a lot of the violence that's in the book, um, you know, was inspired directly by things that had happened to him. And um, goodness, I can remember when he was in hospital, he'd actually been bashed and he was in hospital for well over six weeks with a broken jaw. And he, you know, had to have his uh, jaw wired shut and uh, while he was healing and just, you know, horrendous things. You know, and I couldn't understand how one human being could do that to another. Um, so, you know, it was those moments in, in my past, in my backstory, that I wanted to bring, and in their past and their backstories, that I wanted to amalgamate and bring to this story because even now in 20, well, when I started writing it five years ago, you know, it was so important for me to have my say on those on those things that are still with us, that bigotry that's still out there, you know, even though, you know, gay marriage is legal now in this country and whatever, we still have issues around, uh, around bigotry. As I said, someone recently said to me, why are you advertising this LGBTQ stuff? Get it out of my face. And, and it's just like, <sighs> sorry. Anyway, I guess um, the book is really my effort to, show people that their bigotry is unwarranted and misplaced, especially in modern society, and that addiction always comes from a place of, place of pain and that people really should try to be more understanding and compassionate rather than um, label people incorrectly as, um, you know, undesirables. Sorry, I'm sorry. That was a really long. No, 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 no. no. It was good. It was good. Uh, so, because you mentioned a couple of times as well that you kind of almost came close to, to stopping it because, yeah, because of that. How, how close did you come? I mean, like, what is, is this? Is this because of what you were like the the feedback that you were getting for some of it, or what, what was going on? Yes, that was part of it, uh, and also. I was really concerned that I wasn't going to do justice to the concept. Mm. Um, uh, that was probably my biggest issue. You know, was I, was I doing the right thing by telling this story and raising these issues? Did I know enough? You know, was my knowledge enough to be putting this out there in the world? Um, 
And in the end, I decided, look, even if I haven't got all the facts straight and all the, you know, whatever, I felt that it was important to tell it. It was important to tell the the story. And and I, I was also really concerned that because it's quite confrontational in many ways, you know, the addiction and the homosexuality, that many people wouldn't read it at all. And and that's been true. Um, lots of people say to me, oh, no, I can't read that. It's too confronting. Um, so, you know, I was really aware of the fact that um, I was alienating a potentially... A, a slice of a large slice of my potential audience, my readership, but I thought I, in the end I decided no, I have to be true. I have to be true to the people who inspired it. I have to be true to myself, and I have to be true to the readers who actually will pick it up and and look at it. So in the end, I decided um, that I would keep going and finish it, and I'm really glad that I did. Mm. I'm really glad that I did finish it in the end. I'm glad you did too. I mean. Yeah, there's there's always that going to be at play where it's like, you know, am I going to be alienating a, a, a portion of the readership? I guess that no matter what you do or what you produce, there's always going to be some readers that are going to be alienated anyway. I mean, it's just the virtue yeah. by virtue of how subjective, um, you know, reading a book is. But yeah. I, I guess that it's good that you kind of, because um, I can't imagine a sanitized version or just just by virtue of the, the sort of the themes and the the characters and stuff like that. I feel like I said. Uh, yeah, a sanitized sort of truncated version would then potentially be offensive because then you would be holding back or that, that you wouldn't be depicting things as it was what you experienced. So I'm glad that you... Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad that you pushed through with that because, I mean, I know that you know that the core of the show is mainly revolving around uh, the sort of hardest things that you've had to prevail against or over in order to keep writing and to get to the point where we are now joyfully talking. And yeah, was there one particular standout moment for you, Susanna, where you were like, oh, this, this is, this is, there was either a snap decision where you're like, I could have decided to keep going or I could have easily stopped or was it, there was a sort of period in which you experienced this or was there anything at all like that? Or was it just, cause you did make mention of, of some sort of elements where there was, there was questions that you raised of yourself about continuing or not to continue. Yeah, I think that the, the, it actually came to a head, I think, when I was working on my master's. Mm. Um, because I had to go into, do a lot of research and go into those really, um, because it's autoethnographic, mm. I had to really do some soul searching. Um, and I had to be careful about, you know, was I appropriating someone else's life? You know, was I appropriating the lives of, the, of the, the men who inspired the story? And I had to weigh up. Well, the answer to that is, yes, I am. I, I did appropriate their lives. But then I had to ask myself, well, was it for, what was the purpose, you know, for, for, for that appropriation? Was it for good or for ill? And in the end, I, I decided that it was, you know, it was for good and that it some people would argue it's for ill but i will argue it's for good because i wanted to show that people who are in this position or you know who are addicts or or who are gay and still 
facing bigotry every day of their lives. You know, someone, someone, I had to be an ally for these people. Mm. You know, I really wanted to be an ally for those groups. And I am an ally and, and will continue to be, you know, someone I, even though, look, they have their own voices and, and I, 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 that was another thing. I really worried whether I was, um, you know, not the right person to be a voice for them because they do have their own voices. Um, but in the end, I decided, I reconciled, well, you know, this is my story. Mm. And I, I, I do have to tell this story my way in advocating for you, in, mm. you know, in, in being an ally, in being with you, you know. So I thought, no, I, I will persevere. So doing the MA was really, um, it was in depth, it was confronting. That sounds but like it. Was, yeah, but it was well worth it. Mm. It was worth it in the end, you know. So, you know, even if I have a very small slice of the market <laughs> who, who actually pick it up and are brave enough to read it, um, I'm grateful to those folk for taking a chance on on the story because I think ultimately, despite all the problems, I, I'd like to believe that it's a story that's worth telling and worth reading about because, you know, so much of it, you know, it's cultural. Mm. It is, it's cultural to, to you know, the Australian um, music industry and just Australians on the whole, you know. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, like, a, is it a story worth telling? Because, like, the thought never crossed my mind that it wasn't. Um, and, like, you're mentioning about the appropriation there and stuff like that. And it's a bit of a slippery slope as to what's conditioned or can be defined as, as appropriation. To me, my understanding of it is as appropriation is something whereby you literally, the most purest sense of the word is you appropriate, you take it as your own story and then pass it off as your own, as, as your own lived experience without any sort of deference or acknowledgements mm. of those that have inspired it along with consulting people mm. people who identify as such so i ne- yeah i never um thought that at all Susanna. good so i'm glad that yeah i'm a bit like who am i god forbid samuel james elliott like what what do what do i know but um yeah from me within my lens of the samuel james elliott lens i didn't i didn't think that at all but um yeah, it just sounds like a really, it, was, it was rough. I'm glad you did persevere with it because it did sound pretty rough. I don't know where you're getting that from. Like, were there people that, like, did you have beta readers or something like that? Is that what's, what's where you get this, some of the harsher feedback or was that from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah, from, from a few uh, beta readers, you know, who read the first um, very rough draft. Mm. Uh, very, yeah, but, um, yeah, I was, they really, asked some really good questions mm. you know really pertinent questions and i would i'm glad they were asked um those questions were asked really made me think about well what's the purpose is it just is it just about the romance or is it about anything much deeper mm. and um, you know, no, I, I actually reconciled that in the end. It's, it's really funny, though, when 
people do read it, it's really interesting what they focus on. Mm. You know, some readers will simply focus on the, on the romance and, you know, try to disregard all the rest of it. And yet other folk will focus just on the addiction element. Mm. Um, so it's really, really, really interesting on the, the different levels, you know, the different things that, that people will take away from the story as a whole. Mm. That's been quite enlightening. Um, but that's okay. You know, people will take away what they want, you know, what serves them and what's important to them at the time. Yeah. For me, it was, yeah, I took it as a, as a love story for an interesting, distinctly Australian backdrop. So yeah. That's how, that's how I took it. But all right, what I want to end with, and this is a doozy, is what advice would you have given to yourself when you started writing uh, this nightlife? Oh, gee, you're not wrong. <laughs> doozy of a question. Uh, what that's why I asked it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, just don't doubt. Mm. don't don't i mean yes experience the doubts but don't don't let it stop you you know i'm i i did get to that point where i was going to stop so if i had been aware of that prior to starting i would say just push through all of that just you know don't even consider that you know those those doubts just keep going just keep going push through it's really ironic that you should ask that question because I'm actually I'm working on my next one now, next novel, and you know, um, kind of having the same, the same, some of the same doubts, mm. ironically. But this, you know, that's a that book's inspired by a completely different, you know, group of people. But um, it's funny how the same doubts are emerging. Mm. So obviously, that's something I need to work on. <laughs> something within me that needs to be worked on but uh yeah no don't doubt if you believe in your story and you're passionate about telling it then just do it just go for it very good that's uh universally applied not just to uh yourself but also to listeners as well i believe in any sort of stories that they may be telling too but um Susanna, thank you so much for talking to me today on the right way podcast program really good talking to you thank you thank you for having me it's been great so everyone, that was S.C. Farrow discussing with me her book, This Is Not A Lie. Uh, as is my way, I'll make sure to add into this particular description slash bio of this episode the link to S.C. Farrow's um, website so that you can purchase your copy of This Is Not A Lie, get it into your hot little hands as well. I also want to give a huge shout out to the good folks at the bookshop Darlinghurst as well. So many Sydney bookshops are only operating limited hours during lockdown, having paused deliveries or some service. The bookshop Darlinghurst is operating seven days a week, although they are closed to in-store customers. Their staff are in-store from 9.30am to 5.30pm, Monday to Friday, and slightly condensed hours on Saturday and Sunday. They have an excellent website, which is very comprehensive for LGBTQI plus books and DVDs, but also a curated range of great interest titles. Phone orders are very welcome on 02 9331-1103. That is 02-9331-1103. You can have your order posted and it's free if you spend $75 or more, or you can collect it from the shop if you prefer. They have a regular promotions and are currently offering double loyalty points. 
So please guys, check out the bookshop Darlinghurst as well with that number. I'll also put into the description of this particular episode their website as well so you can get all your, your book needs, your DVD needs, everything from the good folks there at the bookshop Darlinghurst. And um, yeah, in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this particular episode. Stay tuned, got a lot more coming out to you. But uh, in the interim, yes, please get in touch with the bookshop Darlinghurst for all your book needs and stay safe in this lockdown time. And... That is it. Have a good evening.